Viewer discretion is advised. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius, Hawaiian style. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. King of the Karaoke Mic. Mr. King of the Karaoke Mic. Armed with your mic, you brazenly take to the stage, refusing to leave until every last person has been lulled into a peaceful slumber. Wake me when it's over. Country, rock, R&B. From your lips, it all sounds the same, like a sick cat trapped under a parked car. That's a flat kitty. Sure, nobody's clapping, but that doesn't mean you can't give them six more encores. They're clapping on the inside. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh hero of the high note. You sing to the beat of a different drum, because the one in your ear is clearly broken. Mr. Karaoke, King of the Mouth. Bud Light beer, and I suppose so. Strike on the outside corner. 
the next two two. Davis to left and will hit. Oh my! It's gone. From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now here's the host of the show. I never move a slow-mo, welcome to my dojo, those other parts are so-so, I'm chill like Froyo, focus like a GoPro, rip it up this promo, check out the scoreboard, for something with no one knows, it's going, it's going, it's going, yo it's gone, your heart just stop, cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the pod, scroll it down and read it, written, produced, directed and mixed, dog on your lips and Ozzie Smith backflips, pick the chip, any chip, get on to it, I got ridiculous pods without forcing it, you sit at home crying like a girl While I spread the gospel around the world Yo, the pods are written behind tracks That mixed in smooth with the groove To make ears wanna listen Add a little gut and a rhythm to back it up Another show to my name, now I'ma stack them up You think another white rap back But this ain't no act jack My hobbies are rhymes, some people try to be black But that about time I come out Call the show, BKP and let me turn it out Yo, name Jake the Snake, born in 71 Dates, you know what time it is I'm packing them guns, yo, experience I've been been a witness to glory, and that's why I collect ball players and their stories. Y'all heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, freaks? What's juicy? Man, oh man, what a week of baseball since the last time I humbly presented myself to this audience. And it is just another example of how this topsy-turvy 2023 MLB season has shaken out. It reminds me when the brilliant Rowdy Roddy Piper once said, just when you think you have all the answers, I change the questions. Right? I mean, every time I think I have the complexities of this season figured out, the standings are there every day to tell me to get get over myself. I, I don't really know much at all. And, I mean, really, Seamheads, are you not entertained? Hello, everybody. Welcome into the dojo for another week of Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. A historical and biographical baseball show where I come through every Tuesday. And we reminisce on the players, moments, characters, stadiums, pop culture that have been woven into the fabric of American society. And... I bow before you as a humble servant would with my sword, as I am proud to be your master seaman sensei, Jake Robinson. I'm grateful for anyone who takes time out of their day to hear me pontificate the scene. So, thank you. Thank you very much. And what a crazy week of baseball, right? I mean, I know it's football season and fans of baseball teams who aren't competitive are probably shifting gears into that football mode. I totally get it, but chances are, if your team is still in it, 
uh, no matter the results by Sunday night, you are probably riveted by your team's success or the failure they may have suffered. Some things became clear and some things just got more convoluted. We know this were almost a fact, although I probably should be careful saying that in the year like 2023, but we know Atlanta, L.A., they've clinched their divisional pennants. We know Milwaukee is almost guaranteed to win NL Central, as are the Twins, surely destined for that AL Central crown. We also know Tampa and Baltimore are in for sure, but we still can't call the AL East. So that's what we know. You know, it's almost like Jim Rummy and calling out your books. Okay, I got Baltimore, Tampa Bay, Atlanta, L.A. I got the Twins and the Brewers, a strong possible. I'm calling six books there, Sparky. But seriously, with that being said, both the AL and NL wild cards are literally up for grabs. Besides where, you know, who's going to be that number one slot in the American League uh, East and the... uh, American League wildcard, which is going to come down to whoever sits atop the AL East at the end of the day. As the Rays went into Baltimore this past Thursday night, who, you know, the Orioles were reeling from losing the last two in St. Louis earlier in the week before heading home. And with Baltimore holding a slim two-game lead in the standings over Tampa, and with a pivotal four-game series on tap, the Orioles' bats remained ice cold in games one and two. They lost by a combined score of 11 to four. And with the Rays now tied with Baltimore and two more games left to play, the Orioles looked, well, they looked shaky. But Grayson Rodriguez, he pitches eight innings Saturday night. That kid's a freak. I mean, Grayson Rodriguez. You better watch this kid. He's real deal Holyfield. Gunnar Henderson paces the offensive attack, and the O's win 8 to nothing on Sunday. The Orioles win an extra innings, led by their other young stud, Adley fucking Rockstar. They win that game 5-4, to four, and no worse for wear. Even after dropping those first two games horrendously, the Orioles are back to holding a two-game advantage. Well, technically... When you think about it, it's a three-game lead because with those two victories on Saturday and Sunday, the Orioles had a winning record versus every AL East opponent this year, and that includes Tampa. So, in the event of any tie between the Orioles and the Rays, or, you know, any team in the East, theoretically, the O's would win the tiebreaker because they took care of business in the AL East. Now, the O's are in Houston now for the next three games. Then they go to Cleveland for four, who always plays them tough. They come back home. They end the year versus the district for two and four against Boston. And no matter what, both of those teams are in. It's just finding out who's going to win the East. But the Orioles do hold a three-game advantage here now. Stay tuned. It ain't over yet. Both teams need to play better than these last two weeks than they have all year. There needs to be a sense of urgency for both of those teams. So, with Baltimore or Tampa in position to win the East or take that number one wildcard spot, that leaves four teams fighting it out for two wildcard spots. We're talking Texas, Toronto, Seattle, and Houston. And if you notice, three of those teams are from out west, as none of the AOS teams seem to really want that division. The M's, Rangers, Strohs, they all had mediocre weeks. 
I told you a couple weeks ago, Seattle is the streakiest team in the bench. They they were eight out in May. They come on like gangbusters. They look unbeatable for a period of time there. They sat atop the West for a couple weeks, and now they've lost 11 of their last 16 games. But look, thank God for Mariners fans that the Rangers and Astros have been just as inconsistent. The range, the Rangers probably had their best season of uh, series of the year, sweeping wild card contender, and four games earlier this week, Toronto. And then they go into Cleveland and they lay an egg. They got outscored by the Guardians, twenty three to six, in that weekend series, but. You know, thankfully from Texas's perspective, the Astros were just as pathetic. They, they lost a weekend series to the lowly Ray, uh, Royals out at Kaufman. And the Blue Jays kept their hopes alive over the weekend after getting swept by Texas. They in turn sweep Boston at the Rogers Center. And with division rivals only on their remaining schedule in the Yankees and the Rays, on the road, and then ending at home, the Blue Jays would appear to be the one team that has the most control over their own situation. And if they can hold their own versus Tampa and New York for these last four series, they can have a serious impact on the AL East uh, final standings, or, you know, the, the wild card for sure. Or, you know, they could blow it. Say la vie, season over. So many possibilities like I said, stay tuned. I'll go deep on the NL next week, which I gave Philly the benefit of the doubt last week. And I said they were definitely locked in with a six-and-a-half game lead. Well, slow your roll. Slow your ponies. They've gone four and six in their last ten as I put this show together. And the lead has shrunk to three-and-a-half games. So... I'll break that down next week. Also, the Cubs, whom I said they were looking like they were settling into that number two wildcard spot. Spot they've gone two and eight in their last ten, and the Arizona Diamondbacks have leapfrogged them into that number two wildcard spot behind Filthy. So Arizona, the Cubs, who are tied with the Fish, the Reds, and the Giants. I mean, the Giants they got swept in a doubleheader last week to the Spoiler Rockies. All these teams are vying for position in the NL wildcard race. Again, I'll break that down next week as we are literally in that 12 to 13 game left range of the season. Hopefully there is uh, some more clarity in the NL wildcard race next week when I break it down. But right now, it's just too close to call from the wildcard spots uh, one through three in the National League. But look, let's get down to why we are all here, and that is this week's topic. I see the catcher has thrown the ball down, the umpire has called play ball, and the fellers have thrown that ball around the infield. Let's get all you C-Mets to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye. Let's get this platform clear. Load you freaks up on my BKP time travel on Jojo here at Terrapin Station as I call all aboard. <laughs> Step right up, step right up, grab yourself a spot in my sandbox here, open your kimonos, get yourself real comfortable, let's build sandcastles together. As I set our time and destination this week for September 18th, 1959, Spokane, Washington, as this week we will bear witness to the birth and the rise of the legacy of Cubs Hall of Fame icon, second baseman, Mr. Ryan Sandberg. And... 
before we bend baseball's face of time and hit these dimensional wormholes to get to Spokane, Washington in the 1950s, let's get a little background on the day that forever changed his life and career. The day the legend of Rhino was born. On the afternoon of June 23rd, 1984, at Wrigley Field, the hometown Cubbies find themselves in a 9-8 hole in the bottom of the ninth against the rival St. Louis Cardinals. 24-year-old second baseman Ryan Stanberg had already slashed three hits and had four RBIs in the game. He led off the bottom frame against Cards Hall of Fame closer Bruce Suter. And as he's walking from the on-deck circle to his right-handed batter's box, Rhino kept telling himself to open your stride and look inside. On a 1-1 pitch, Sandberg pounded on a sinking splitter and hammered into the last row of the left center field bleachers. Somehow, some way, with one swing of the bat, Sandberg had brought his team from the brink and nodded the game at nines for extra innings play. The cards struck back in the 10th, playing two runs, and the usually dominant suitor was once again sent out to the bump to finish what he had started. With two outs and a man on first, it was Sandberg once again strolling to the box, telling himself once again to open up and look for something inside. And once again, Ryan attacked the third pitch of the at-bat, and once again, he dropped game-time dong all over Suter's lips. And for the second consecutive inning against arguably the most dominating closer of the National League in the 80s decade, he had tied the game up for a second time. By the time the Cubs broke the 11-11 tie, the 11 for the win, the outcome of the contest was rendered practically anticlimactic. And June 23rd, 1984, would forever be remembered as the Ryan Sandberg game in Cubs lore. And that day was probably the beginning of of the National Sandberg Mythos. Seemingly overnight, after that game, he became an instant superstar recognized throughout the baseball universe. When Sandberg reflects on that day, he is quick to say that that game was the turning point in his illustrious career, and it completely changed his life as Sandberg would blossom into a genuine five-tool player and an absolute rarity for a middle infielder, especially at second base. And look, that was the clip that we played at the top of the show. Him dropping two game-time dongs off of Bruce Suter. And Bruce Suter was straight-up nasty. I mean, 1984, he's filthy. That team goes on to, uh, you know, a couple World Series appearances together. Straight filth. And here we are, folks. September 18th, 1959, coming into Spokane, Washington, the birth state, the birth date, and the home state of this icon where he is welcomed into this world as the youngest of four children to Sandy and Libby Sandberg. His parents came from very different paths before they met and fell in love. His father, Sandy, was born in Fargo, North Dakota, the son of Swedish immigrants, and he grew up in the small Minnesota town of Warren. His mother, Libby, was born in what was then called the Belgian Congo in Africa, the daughter of Methodist missionaries 
And then she grew up in Vermont. Their lives would merge during World War II, and through a mutual acquaintance, the two would correspond with one another while Sandy was overseas fighting Nazis. After the war, the two began a romance, and Sandy and Libby would marry one another on September 15, 1946. The couple named their youngest son after former New York Yankees pitcher Ryan Duren. Uh, the D in his middle name stands for Duren, actually. He was the second of three sons to be named after a ball player, as his older brother, Dell, was named after former Phillies whiz kid, Dell Ennis, and his sister, Marl, and his older brother, Lane, rounded out the Sandberg unit. His father worked long hours at the Hazen and Jaeger Valley Funeral Home, while Libby was a registered nurse and a nonstop mom. The most effective advice that his dad ever gave him when he was young was, uh, keep your mouth shut and your eyes and ears open. Then you might learn something. At North Central High School in Spokane, Ryan was top shelf liquor in football, basketball, and of course, baseball. On the gridiron, the gridiron, the QB and punter, he earned All-American honors in Parade Magazine. In fact, during his high school career from 1975 to 1977, he held the Greater Spokane League record for passing yardage. And he held that until future Washington Super Bowl MVP Mark Rippin broke his numbers three years later. On the hardwood parquet, the 6-1-2 small forward earned second team GSL honors his junior and senior years. Uh, and one of his fiercest rivals in high school ho- hoops was Hall of Fame point guard John Stockton out of Gonzaga Prep High School. As the late 70s is still considered the golden age of scholastic athletics in the Spokane Valley. On the baseball field, Berg, as the boys called him, was named to the All-City team twice he had 417 with four home runs. He helped lead the Indians to a 25-3 and record, which was good enough for second place in the state tournament championship. As a senior, he was rated as the second-best player of the team behind junior catcher Chris Henry. But still, he drew the attention of many Major League scouts. During his senior year, Rhino made... Football recruitment trips to several colleges, campuses, including the Big 8 Conference football powers, uh, Oklahoma and Nebraska. Sandberg preferred baseball over football, but the allure of being a local football star, it did intrigue Ryan. He signed a letter to attend, a uh, letter of intent to attend uh, Washington State on a football scholarship, which caused many baseball scouts to lose interest and look for other options. However, Sandberg's decision did not dissuade Bill Harper, scout for the Philadelphia Phillies. He and his partner, Wilbur Moose Johnson, convinced Phillies director of scouting Dallas Green to take a chance on the three-sport stud out of Washington State. On June 8, 1978, the Phillies select Ryan D. Sandberg in the 20th round of the amateur draft. Eight days later, Harper would meet Ryan, Dell, and their parents at the Sandberg home to talk turkey. His mother was concerned, as all mothers are, about her son's decision to possibly forego college and, you know, forget the education. She really was about education. And Harper made his pitch to the family, which included a $20,000 signing bonus, which was more in line with second and third round picks, and $20,000 in 1978. It's worth around 
$94,000 today in the 2023 economy. After the offer was presented, Ryan and Dell took a walk to discuss the options. Dell, who was a major cog on the uh, Washington State University uh, baseball team that went to the 1976 College World Series, advised his brother to follow his heart and telling him, if you truly want to pursue baseball over football, you should accept this Phillies offer. So Ryan took heed of his older brother, and after their little powwow, they returned home, and the 18-year-old shortstop signed with Filthy. His first stop in pro ball is Helena, Montana, in the short season Pioneer League. In a poll conducted by a local radio station and his teammates, he is selected as the team MVP after hitting 311. In 1979, he moved up to Class A Spartanburg in the Western Carolina League. And despite batting just 247 on the year, he has tied for the team high in runs scored. So, during the season, he feels good about himself. He married Cindy White, his high school sweetheart. The teenagers were away to a civil ceremony attended by teammates and the manager, Bill Dancy. Their marriage would last 15 years, and they would have two children together, daughter Lindsay and their son Justin. In 1980, he is promoted to AA Reading, and he posted personal highs in virtually every offensive category. He is named to the Eastern League All-Star team after a solid 1981 in AAA Oklahoma City. He is called up to the Bills and used exclusively as a pinch runner and defensive replacement. At times, he can remember being a little overwhelmed standing next to Pete Rose and Mike Schmidt. His MLB debut happens on September 2nd, 1981. In 13 games, six trips to the plate. He had one hit, single that came off of Mike Krukow at the uh, Wrigley Field of all places. And you like to think maybe the Cubs saw something that day in Sandberg with his poke off of Krukow. But, Krukow, but the truth is, the minor league apprentice had showed above average speed in defense with very little pop in his lumber. Uh, nothing that would stand out and make you say, this kid is going to be among the greatest second basemen who ever lived. On January 27, 1982, the Phillies traded Sandberg and Larry Boa to the Cubs for a shortstop, Avon Jesus. Now, legend has it that the Cubs really traded for Boa and Sandberg was just a throw-in piece, but that's not completely accurate. The Cubs did, in fact, target Rhino. Okay, here's the bad story. Let me see if I can succinctly break this down for you. The Phillies had Mike Schmidt at third. They had Manny Trio at second. And they never really looked at Rhino as their shortstop of the future. They they also had what they felt like was a plethora of shortstop prospects to succeed the aging Bowie, as well as middle infield types uh, on their farm. Now, behind Sandberg on the prospect list... They also had, you know, shortstop second baseman Julio Franco, whom AAA's manager Dancy praised as the best all-around prospect he had ever coached in his life. Rhino had been put on the market as early as 1980. After his incredible year at Reading, Billy doubled down on trading him at the 1981 winter meetings as the defending champs dangled him as trade bait in an effort to get a top-of-the-rotation arm to pair with Steve Carlton. 
the Blue Jays, Mariners, and White Sox, they all kick the tires on some trade scenarios, but nothing, nothing materialized. He was even offered to the Brewers, who have Hall of Famer Robin Yount and a solid, productive Jim Gantner at second, uh, manning their keystone spots already, and are now a year away from going to the 1982 World Series. It was reportedly a three-for-one trade uh, for pitcher Mike Caldwell. When Milwaukee GM Harry Dalton insisted on Franco over Sandberg, Filthy nixed the deal. And that right there, when I'm thinking about it, you know, saying this to you, it's it's a crazy trade that could have had consequences on baseball history. I mean, Yount is eventually moved to center field in retrospect. If Milwaukee makes that deal, does that precipitate the Yount move to the outfield? Sandberg at shortstop? Same if they had acquired Franco, really. My thought is maybe those two end up at second and they just get rid of Gantner. But Gantner was a solid Brewers loyalist. That team would look totally different without him. But certainly, especially the 82 team, but certainly even more powerful with Yount Sandberg up the middle or Yount Franco. That's pretty fucking scary. So, by the end of the winter meetings, it appeared the Phils were willing to ride with Larry Boa for one more year. But then, uh, yeah, Larry Boa went on Larry Boa on club president Bill Giles demanding a three-year extension with a hefty pay raise. And Giles had reservations in the first place about riding with Boa for one more year. And, you know, he got tired of the squabbling with the 36-year-old shortstop. So, he began shopping in the teams who were willing to meet his salary demands. Meanwhile, back at the friendly confines of Wrigley Field, Dallas Green, who had left the Phils to become GM of the Cubbies, well, he now had holes to fill on his new team, especially in the infield. He knew that Filthy, well, they were out leveraged in their trading power and options, and negotiations between the two organizations, they began to intensify. Gordon Goldsberry, the director of minor leagues and scouting, he kept whispering in Green's ear, do not make any deal with Philly if they don't offer Sandberg in the package. And Dallas recalls, it, it was like pulling teeth trying to pry Sandberg from the Phillies. Finally, the deal was consummated, but not everyone in the room agreed to it. Years later, Bill Giles would kind of place the blame at the feet of coach Bobby Wine, who was updating the GM from Winterball that, you know, he just didn't think Rhino could field well enough to play every day, second and short, especially with Juan Samuel racing up through the system. And Wine never appreciated being thrown under the bus by his former GM, but he admitted I truly didn't think he could play the caliber of shortstop like we were used to in Philadelphia. Like Boa. He was looked at as a utility man from the Phillies' perspective. With Chicago, the 22-year-old was given a shot at a starting position. And at his first Cubs spring training camp, he asked equipment manager Yosh Kawano for number 14, which was his number in high school. And... He remembers being sheepishly embarrassed when Kawano informs him that the number 14 was actually retired for a certain guy they call Mr. Cub around here, legend Ernie Banks. 
after realizing his faux pas, he kindly accepted the number 23 when it was handed to him. And even though his heart was set on wearing number 14, Sandberg would be the first chapter in transforming the iconic numeral in Chicago sports lore. As four days before the Sandberg game, new draft pick of the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, would be given the number. And a few years later, Devin Hester would immortalize 23 while performing as one of the greatest return men in NFL history for the Bears. When manager Lee Aaliyah presents himself to the media after the trade, he can hardly contain his excitement as he proclaims to the Chicago scribes that Rhino has the ability to fill the void at second base, third base, and center field, which was news to Sandberg, as he had played a total of four games at third base and zero in the outfield during his minor league career. But he showed enough at Arizona Fall Ball that the club was confident enough to pencil Ryan in at third base, batting seventh in the 1982 opening day lineup. And Ryan would have a slow, unmemorable start to his first full year at the show. He did his best Willie Mays impression by going one for his first 36 plate appearances. And to Aaliyah's credit, he never lost confidence in the youngster. And Rhino would come around and slowly move up the lineup because of his production. By mid-season, the future Hall of Famer was batting as a leadoff stick in the two-hole or in the two-hole, and his defense at third was a respectable league average. In early September, Green and Aaliyah called Sandberg into the office. They huddle up. They told their youngster that they envisioned him as a Bobby Gritch type player. A big second baseman who can hit around new 280 with pop and wheels, as well as the ability to score runs. So, with almost no preparation, his real estate changes from the hot corner to the Keystone sacks for the remainder of the season. And Sandberg finished off his rookie 1982 season with a 271 batting average, 7 home runs, 32 stolen bases, and a rookie franchise record 103 runs scored. He was selected to the top's all-rookie team at third base, a, uh, a position he had never played before, I'm sorry, second base, and he pulled sixth in NL Rookie of the Year voting behind another second baseman, Dodger Steve Sachs. With him solidified as the Cubs second baseman going forward, he and Larry Boa got together in Phoenix, Arizona weeks before spring training, and they began forming a synergy as the Cubs' new Keystone combo, taking literally hundreds, if not thousands, of ground balls together a day. And Sandberg always credits Boa for setting high standards and giving him a pregame routine that stuck with him throughout his career. And the hard work pays off as Rhino receives a Gold Glove Award for his defensive play at second, become the first player in NL history to win a Gold Glove in his first year at a new position. As for the offense, Sandberg again got off to a dismal start, which would actually become a prophetic trademark for his career. But eventually... Sandberg would shrug off his sophomore jinx to finish with a 261 average, 8 home runs, 37 stolen bases, and 94 runs scored. At this point in Rhino's career, 
He is still a punch hitter, slapping base hits to right field and creating chaos on the base pass. And he's pretty good in that role, but that approach would change in the 1984 season, the season of the infamous Sandberg game. And look, C-Mads, I think this is where I'm going to go all Lincoln Park on you because I'm about to break. We've spoken now about the rise of the kid from Spokane, Washington, to his run through the Phillies organization, to the infamous trade between Filthy and the Northsiders. And now, Rhino has embraced his new position, and the wheels of history have been set in motion as Sandberg is about to take his play to Hall of Fame level. So, when we come back, I'll continue the story of this amazing ball player with Acts 2 and 3. Let me hydrate, pay some bills. BRBC Meds, please support the grassroots sponsor that supports your grassroots baseball podcast show. Laparose Hand Cleaner. Buy one, get one free promo deal for all the podcast listeners. Nah, epic. I'll let Pod Squatch tell you all about it. See you on the other side of the break, freaks. It's the Pod Squad, Gage Gein, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Clapperose Hand Cleaners, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cleaner. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy foods or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fishing hand cleaner get rid of bait funk, the crawfish hand cleaner, wing hand cleaner, removes the spicy bones around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he and his family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September... Laparose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaners. Buy one, get one. We only advertise products on Backwards K Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, Get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing. 
Explain hot foot, Jody. Explain this to everyone. Basically, what you're trying to do is light someone's foot on fire without them knowing. That's the thing. You know, without them knowing is the key. <laughs> and Rhino was the best at it because Rhino would go in the training room and get the little syringes without the needles, and he would put rubbing alcohol in them. So he could shoot your, your feet with alcohol from like three or four feet away, and you'd never know it. And then all you got to do is get a match in the neighborhood, you know. Uh, Tony Garofalo, our manager, brought one of his best friends, uh, a Chicago's finest police officer, down into the to training room one day. <laughs> and there's about ten of us in there. And, uh, you know, we're all sitting around shooting the crap and, and joking around with this guy because this is his big day, right? He's in uniform. His shoes are all clean. And we're just all just, you know, hanging out. And... Uh, Rhino lights the guy up. <laughs> he lit the police officer's the police foot on officer fire. Is on fire. Well, <laughs> it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and we start laughing. First pitch to Tim Cisnera hitting the right field, leading off the bottom of the sixth. And he flies out, catch made by Craig Didolo. He's one for three in the game. One down, Andy Weber coming up. And so the guy's shoes, I mean, this one shoe... But, I mean, it's blazing. And there's like eight players in there, and it's burning so bright and loud that we start laughing. Well, the cop didn't know what we were laughing at, so he just starts laughing with us. (laughs) He didn't realize that you were laughing that his foot was on fire. And then all of a sudden, his foot got hot. (laughs) And here comes the thing, and I try to get it out without burning your hands, you know. <laughs> Andy Weber doubled and scored and grounded out. Smokey's by a run here in the sixth. It was and Rhino was the one behind that one? Oh, Rhino was always behind it. to the legend of the iconic second baseman, Ryan Sandberg, and adding him to our collection. Before I took a break, we had just finished, talked about his second year as a full-time major leaguer with the Northside Cubs, and his third season overall. Uh, He's developed into a gold glove-worthy second baseman who punches base hits to the opposite field, and is a threat to create chaos on the base pass with a speed. 
And internally, the Cubs organization has visions of Sandberg becoming a Bobby Gritch type second baseman who can change the complexion of a game with one swing. And going into the 1984 season, the coaches and new manager Jim Fry emphasized that they wanted to see Sandberg open his hips and lock into attack pitches. It was time for Rhino to develop his raw power and size and look to pull the ball more. He was quickly becoming a fan favorite during his second year at the Confines as the Vapor nicknamed him Rhino that season. And even though he had nearly touched his ceiling as a young developing player, he had matinee idol good looks, which played well to the day game schedule at Wrigleyville, as well as his quiet demeanor and a work ethic that was becoming legendary, quite honestly, especially for a third-year player. The Cubs organization rewarded Sandberg for that ethic by agreeing to a six-year $38.5 million deal through 1989 in February of 1984. And to give that contract some perspective, $38.5 million in 1984 has the purchasing power of around $114 million in the 2023 economy. So you're looking at around $6 million a year in 1984 and around $19 million a year today in 2023. And I can't speak for any of you, but six years of Sandberg at $19 million per today during his prime years? Yeah, sign me up for that deal. I'll take that deal all day. That's still a lot of money, but still, in retrospect, it is a testament to the vision and the belief that the Cubs had in Rhino. From day one of spring training, new manager Jim Brock, he challenged his athletic ex-quarterback, and he asked him in March, quite honestly, hey, how come you're not more of a power threat and an MVP candidate? The humble Sandberg saw himself as a table setter who legged out infield hits and stole bags at the top of the lineup. But Fry wasn't trying to hear that noise. He had recently come over to the Cubs from Baltimore, where he served at the feet of Earl Weaver for five seasons, watching the Orioles have success with the power game. And Jimmy took one look at Sandberg and his work ethic and determined that there was much more inside his second baseman yet to give. He almost had to hype the kid into believing that he was a game-changing type of player. Fry was convinced 100%. It wasn't the lack of physical ability, rather the untapped confidence in his mindset and his approach to hitting. So, Fry and Rhino would work together for hours in the cage, and the manager began to emphasize his mantra of opening up your hips and murder pull that inner half pitch. That was a gaping hole in his punch and Judy approach. On March 27, 1984, Dallas Green would put the cherry on top of the whole new Ryan Sandberg metamorphosis when he acquires outfielder Bob Dernier and Gary Matthews from the Phillies. The trade would reunite two former Philly farmhands and Dernier and Rhino, and they became the one-two punch in the Cubs lineup that team broadcaster Harry Carey dubbed as the Daily Double. With the speedy Dernier creating havoc on the base pass and the clutch bat of Sergeant Matthews on deck behind him, Sandberg saw his share of fastballs, and by May, he ain't missing many of them. 
after his customary slow start in April. Sandberg is mashing baseballs and embarrassing NL pitchers. Over the next two months, he posted a 374 batting average, a 630 slug. He earned NL Player of the Week honors twice, League Player of the Month in June. His home runs in the Sandberg game, they gave him nine on the year. His personal high at that point that he would continue to add to throughout the season. On June 19th, he was a distant third most vote getter on the All-Star ballot for NL second baseman's Behind Steve Sachs and Manny Trio. And when the final ballot count was released three weeks later, he had topped a million votes to finish in first. On July 10th, and his first all-star appearance, Rhino goes one for four, and he swiped a bag. After the break, Sandberg resumed his hot hitting. On July 12th, he clobbered the only walk-off home run of his career off the Dodgers' Closer Tom Needenfuhrer in the 10th inning at the Confines. He would finish the campaign with 19 home runs, a 319 average, which was fourth best in the league, a 520 slug, which was third, 200 hits, second most in the league, 36 doubles, and his 19 triples led the league, as did his 114 runs scored, which also eclipsed a franchise record set by Billy Herman in 1935. But wait, there's more. His 8.6 war was league best. His 331 total bases was second in the league. For the third year in a row, he swiped over 30 bags, and defensively, he committed only six uh, six errors at his position. His play led the Cubs to the NL Championship versus the San Diego Padres, where he was brilliant. Batted 368 with a pair of doubles and a stolen base, but Chicago had fallen five games. And it was the only disappointment to what was otherwise quite a magical season fit for the ages. Sandberg collected 22 of 24 possible first place votes and won the 1984 NL MVP award. He also won his first silver slugger and his second gold glove. On January 30th, 1985, the baseball field at his alma mater high school in Spokane was renamed Sandberg Field. The Cubs revert to their lovable loser ways over the next four years. Sandberg, however, continues to dominate. In 1985, he finishes with 26 bombs and 54 stolen bases to become only the third major leaguer to exceed 25 home runs and 50 thefts in a season. As the Cubs retooled their lineup over the next three years, his offensive output fell off a little, slightly, even still, he continued to excel defensively. In 1988, he earns a sixth consecutive Gold Glove Award, surpassing the club record of five straight set by Ron Santel at third base from 1964 to 1968. On August 8th, the first night game in the history of Wrigley Field, and his first at bat, the huge... Beautiful, lovely breasted entertainer known as Morgana, the Kissing Bandit. A woman who's in our collection here at BKP. She bolted her box seat stands and unsuccessfully tries to smooch Sandberg. On the very next pitch of that at bat, Sandberg smokes what appears to be the first night time home run at Wrigley. But the game was rained out, as was the historical accomplishment and acknowledgement. Of Rhino's Blast. On March 2nd, 1989, the 29-year-old was ready to test the free agent market for the first time. 
winning the Cubs agreed to a three-year pack for $6.1 million, making him one of the highest-paid second basements in the game. $6.1 million in 1989, it has the purchasing power of $15.1 million today. By the time the 1989 season is underway, Sandberg and the faithful could see that this was a much different team than they were five years earlier in the fairy tale season. By this time, Dallas Green had left the organization, Fry was now executive vice president in charge of baseball operations, and Don Zimmer, old Popeye, was the manager. Sandberg himself was the lone holdover position player left from the 1984 squad, and he and 1987 MVP Andre Dawson were projected to power the offense, but Hawk battled injuries, and Ryan was slow to get on track. Despite the challenges, the club remained in the pennant race on the morning of July 29th. The Northsiders were only two and a half games behind the Giants in the NL East, and Sandberg was batting 258 with 12 home runs. Finally, he finds his groove from July 29th to game 162. He bats 348 and blast 18 more home runs. The Cubs won the NL East by six games, and Rhino's 30 home runs were a personal best. Moreover, the sure-handed second sacker did not commit an error after June 20th in the NLCS. He has eight hits and 20 at-bats, including three doubles, one triple, and a home run. But the Cubs will fall to the Giants in five games. At the end of the year, he collects his fourth straight Silver Slugger Award, and his seventh consecutive gold glove. In 1990, Sandberg has arguably his career year at the age of 30. He leads the National League with 40 home runs, 116 runs scored, and 344 total bases. He was the first National League second baseman to lead the NL in home runs since Rogers Hornsby in 1925. And his first he was the first second sacker to have back-to-back seasons of 30-plus dogs. His 25 stolen bases helped him become the third player behind only Hank Aaron and Jose Consenco to post a 40-home run season in conjunction with 25 thefts. That year, at the annual Midsummer Classic All-Star Game, which was held in Wrigley Field, Ryan collected 2.5 million votes, the most of any NL representative, and he rewarded the fans by winning the Home Run Derby on his home turf. And while Ryan found personal success, his Cubbies stumbled from being division champs the year before to a sub-500 team in 1990. He follows the incredible 1990 season with two more seasons uh, in 91 and 92. He hits 26 bombs and scores over 100 runs in both campaigns. His combined war of 21.9 over a three-year span of 1989 to 1991 was third behind only Barry Bonds and Cal Ripken Jr. And his fielding was superb. He added a seventh Silver Slugger Award and his ninth Gold Glove Award, leapfrogging him past Bill Mazeroski and Frank White for the most ever at the second base position. As the player who once saw himself as a slap hitter, utility man. He had developed at the behest of Jim Fry a decade ago into now amongst the elite second basements who ever done it. Sandberg earned $2.1 million in 1992, the last year of his three-year deal. Of course, his salary had been surpassed many times over as the free agent dollars of the 90s began to explode. 
On March 2nd, 1993, his agent Stan Cook and the Cubs agreed to a four-year, $28 million contract, $7.1 million annually, which far exceeded the record of a $5.8 million deal that the Mets still pay for here in 2023. And beyond with slugger Bobby Bonilla. Ryan Sandberg was the highest paid player in baseball history at this point. You know, until the next big thing in baseball comes along. That's how it works, right? Such is the nature of the game with the uh, pay structure on Major League Baseball. But, at the time, Ryan Sandberg had four years, $28 million. It's the biggest contract ever. And I'd like to mention that $28 million in 1993 is akin to... $59.5 million today. So $7 million a year in 93 is like $15 million a year today. In 1993, he bats 309. He was voted to his 10th All-Star game, but he broke his hand at spring training and was limited to only 117 games that year, a career low. And his power production fell off significantly. The following year, Sandberg comes out of the gate strong, but a slump from May to June saw him bat a lowly 194 with one one home run. On June 13, 1994, 10 days before the 10-year anniversary of the Sandberg game, the best second baseman in the National League at the age of 34 stunned the baseball universe when he announced his retirement in an emotional press conference with his Wendy, with his wife Cindy by his side. And he says, you know, he lost his competitive fire. He wanted to spend time with the kids. He admitted he just didn't have the drive, the motivation, or the killer instinct for a game. And he forfeited about $15 million on his contract and set off for his new chapter in life. The reclusive star insisted that uh, marriage difficulties that were blown up in the newspapers and had no influence on his decision to up and quit, but it was reported later that wife Cindy had filed for divorce in December of 1993 after a brief reconciliation of a Christmas. Cindy refiled the divorce papers a week after Ryan's retirement on July 5th, 1995. All this after a July 11th, 1994 broadcast of a NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw that depicted a happy, loving Sandberg unit frolicking in their backyard pool. And I got some footage of that somewhere. Let me say, looking back on it now all these years, Rhino just looks like he's going through something internally. And this is just a, you know, puff piece to... Keep the media scrutiny at bay from the rumors of this, you know, contentious divorce. And it was contentious. I mean, there are awful rumors that I'm not going to mention here. I mean, I heard a lot of awful things going on behind the scenes in their marriage. And most of it, it's, you know, it's unverifiable. So it's not really worth repeating. But, man, it was bad. I tell you. Where's that clip at? Okay, here's that clip. Of Ryan explaining to NBC News why he left baseball. A heady time of the year for the players who make it onto the special teams. The honor of it all and the salaries that put them on easy street once they're off the base paths. Well, tonight, NBC's Mike Leonard has the story of one all-star who decided to give it all up for all the right reasons. 
As the media spotlight narrows its focus onto this all-star gathering in Pittsburgh, a true baseball superstar plays out his remarkable story in the quiet of an Arizona backyard. He is 34-year-old Ryan Sandberg, the all-star who walked away, the millionaire player who got a little greedy for something else in life. Well, I, I feel like it was time uh, that I watched the kids grow up and, uh, and be a father to them, you know, full-time. A career flip-flop that stunned the sports world. Tonight's game would have been Ryan Sandberg's 11th as an All-Star. But from the start of the season, the Chicago Cubs second baseman knew something was wrong. His homesick mind wandered. His play suffered. So one month ago, he decided to take some drastic action. Well, I woke up a Saturday morning on a game day and said, uh, I think I might retire. He told his bewildered team that he wasn't earning his money, that the competitive fire was out. They urged him to relax for a few days. Thinking that uh, maybe one day it would come back, but it really never did. And and he left, quietly. Sports fans aren't used to the sight of a pro athlete turning back a paycheck for such noble reasons. It just didn't make sense. After all, Ryan Sandberg seemed to be living out the ultimate male fantasy by playing Major League Baseball on a field like this for a guaranteed salary of over $15 million for the next three and a half years. And then to suddenly give it all up. You know, I just think that I have other things that are more important to me than uh, the money part of it and, and the salary that I made. Hear, hear, cried the people for the ex-baseball player who isn't too proud to caddy now for a pro-golfing friend of his. Three cheers shout the children for the dad who now has plenty of time to work on that backyard double play. Mike Leonard, NBC News, Ahwatukee, Arizona. And I don't know, man, it just doesn't age well, you know, in retrospect, as, yeah, Sandberg just doesn't look happy in this interview to me. He looks like a man with inner turmoil, almost like he's delivering, like, this keynote speech written by Kim Jong-un with the messy divorce behind him. Ryan meets and marries Margaret Koneman in August of 19... Uh, yeah, August of 1995. In Sandberg's 1995 autobiography, stated, he stated that he was frustrated with the Cubs management, in particular Larry Himes, who had replaced Rye's GM and had allowed Dawson and Greg Maddox to walk to free agency. And without names, he also blasted the new era young players who were more interested in individual stats and getting paid over winning baseball games. But with his personal life coming together and the security and support of his new wife and with Himes gone, Rhino ended his retirement, returned to the Northside Cubs for two more seasons. He signed a one-year deal for $2 million plus incentives in 1996 and he bashed 25 home runs while driving in 92. He would re-sign for $3.2 million in 1997 with a vesting option for a second year. On April 26, he slugs his 267th career home run, breaking the mark for second baseman set previously by Joe Morgan. But his production began to tail off, and on August 2nd, Sandberg informed the press this would be his last year. He smashed his final MLB hit on September 19, 1997, one day after his 38th birthday. The following afternoon, the Cubs held Ryan Sandberg Day at Wrigley Field, where the loquacious Sandberg told the crowd, I truly lived my field of dreams here at Wrigley Field. And 
The crowd roared goodbye to their veteran icon. But he remained with the coach for the next nine years as a spring training instructor. In 2005, his third year of eligibility, he was elected for the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, along with the legendary Wade Box. On August 28, 2005, Sandberg became the fourth Cub to have their uniform number retired, along with Mr. Cub, Billy Williams, and Ron Santo. In 2007, the Hall of Fame returned. The Hall of Famer returned to his minor league roots and began a chapter in his a whole new chapter in his baseball story. He was hired by the Cubs to manage the Peoria Chiefs of the Class A Midwest Leagues. Two years later, he's moved up to Double A Tennessee Smokies, and in 2010, he was promoted to the Triple A Iowa Cubs, where he earned. Pacific Coast League Manager of the Year honors. He interviewed for the Cubs manager position vacated by Lou Pinella, but he didn't get the gig. Rather than remain in Iowa, Sandberg left for the Phillies organization and skippered the AAA Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs for two seasons. On August 16th, 2013, Phil's manager Charlie Manuel is fired and Filthy Inks Rhino to a three-year deal to manage the big club after posting a 119 and 159 record in Philly. He resigns on June 25th, 2015 amid a front office shakeup. And before we go much further, uh, I feel it apropos to mention that Charlie Manuel, it's being reported that he just had a stroke. He was having some kind of operation. He had a stroke during the operation. The next 48 hours are critical. And I definitely want to send my prayers out to Charlie Manuel and his family. I mean, that's just horrible. Rhino would return to the shy in the role of an ambassador as he greeted season ticket holders and attended charity events on behalf of the Cubbies. It was a fitting honor for one of the greatest and most beloved players in club's history. On October 30th, 2016, Sandberg finally saw his team win a world championship. And Rhino would throw out the first pitch before Game 5. As of 2019, he and his wife Margaret reside in uh, the Chicago suburbs of Lake Bluff, Illinois. He is a frequent Cubs commentator on local TV and radio broadcast. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to wrap it up this week on the Ryan biography. I'm so proud, so proud to have a voice and a platform to share this with all the seamheads around the world. And I'm also proud to take, you know, take this story and put it in my collection. I'm going to have it steam-dried, fold it up real nicely, and hang it up prominently in my Hall of Collections. I truly enjoy doing the work and the research, and I hope you enjoyed hearing this story. And look, seamheads, I give you my word. I'm going to get back in the box next week and try to be better. But before I break out like a bad case of measles, let's take one final look at those oh so lovely Ryan Sandberg Hall of Fame stats. Okay, so let's see what we have here. Ryan D. Sandberg. Oh yeah, that's good right there, baby. That's the greatest band to ever come out of Chicago, baby. I don't care what anybody says. Earth, Wind, and Fire, kid. What? 
Ryan D. Sandberg, 16-year baseball career with the Phillies and Cubs. Born on September 18, 1959 in Spokane, Washington. So on this day, this show officially casts its shadow on the baseball universe. Rhino is officially... Well, how old is he here? 89, 99, 69, 79, 89, 99, 2009, 19. So he's 64 years old. Happy birthday, Mr. Sandberg. I consider myself... Very lucky to have witnessed your greatness in my lifetime. He sports a 67.9 war, the 12th best mark for wins above replacement at second base. And he is sandwiched between Robinson Cano and Roberto Alomar at 13. 2,164 games, 9,282 plate appearances, 1,318 runs scored, 2,386 hits. 403 doubles, 76 triples, 282 home runs. His 275 dogs at second base are the third most in that position, behind only Jeff Kent's 354 and Cano's 335. 1,061 RBI, 344 stolen bases, 107 times caught, 3,787 total bases, the 118th most in baseball history. And he finished with a 285, 3.4, 4.52 slash, a 795 OPS, and a 114 OPS plus. 10-time All-Star, 1984 NL MVP, 3-time top 5 vote getter and MVP votes, 1984, 1989, and 1990. 9 Gold Glove Awards from 1983 to 1991. 7 Silver Slug Awards, 1984, 85, and 88 to 1992. Two-time National League Player of the Month, June of 84, June of 1990, 1990 Home Run Derby winner. And in 2005, after his third year in the ballot, he received 76.2% of the vote to merit inclusion in the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Wow, what a career. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Ryan Sandberg. I mean, what a legend. I am so proud to have a platform to be able to talk about a guy like this. This is this is a guy that exemplifies why I do this in the first place. And let's wrap this puppy up. Get this BKP time travel choo-choo back to Terrapin Station where your loved ones are waiting. But before I do, let's listen to Sandberg pontificate on what life as a cub is like. Respect. Andre Dawson. Bahar. No player in baseball history worked harder, suffered more, or did it better than Andre Dawson. He's the best I've ever seen. Stand up, Hawk.
the Hawk. I watched him win an MVP for a last place team in 1987. And it was the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in baseball. He did it the right way, the natural way. And he did it in the field and on the bases and in every way. And I hope he will stand up here someday. We didn't get to a World Series together, but we almost got there, Hawk. That's my regret, that we didn't get to a World Series for Cub fans. I was in the postseason twice, and I'm thankful for that. Twice we came close. It reminds me of the guy walking down the beach. He finds a bottle, pops the cork, and a genie comes out to grant him one wish. The guy says, my wish is for peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Here's a map of the Middle East. Genie takes the map, studies it for hours and hours, finally gives it back to the guy and says, is there anything else you want to wish for? This is impossible. The guy says, well, I always wanted to see the Cubs in a World Series. Genie looks at him, reaches out and says, let me have another look at that map. What, 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 what? I will never charge you freaks for the baseball content here at BKP. No pay-to-play subscriptions, no Twitch, no Patreon, no way, Jose. I would never pay for a pod. I promise to never do that to this audience. And I'm just going to roll up my sleeves, put in the word, come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Stan the Man, baby. So... With that Sandberg bio getting smaller and smaller in our rearview mirror, I now turn my attention back to our never-say-die baseball hydra. I reach into my kimono, unsheath my katana, and I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we're taking our BKP time travel on choo-choo to the city of brotherly love. To dissect the life and career of arguably the greatest all-around third baseman who has ever graced the diamond. I'm talking about the iconic, the legendary, the one and only, Michael Jack Schmidt, ladies and gentlemen. And I surely cannot wait to get the meat off them bones right there. Make sure you join me for our next chapter here at Backwards K-Pod, where... We collect ball players and their stories. Please remember to share with all your cement buddies. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. Like on every single podcast platform. I'm there. Please leave a rate review for a good brother. Those are my lifelines. I depend on those to keep the show viable. And my Google search profile strong. If you guys are in the Denver area or plan to take that ski trip, please stop by the National Ballpark Museum on Blake Street. It's just a long fly ball from Coors Field, baby. My boys Bruce and Danny, they've amassed quite a collection of paraphernalia in this baseball time portal. And they would love to answer your questions. Show you around. And look, 
as a cherry on top, my dudes like to play some BKP on the speakers while you tour your exhibits. So, winner, winner. Big Tam dinner, baby. Let's support the Grassroots Baseball Museum that supports your Grassroots Baseball Pod. Love those dudes. That's Bruce and Danny at the National Ballpark Museum on Blake Street in Denver, Colorado. Just a long fly ball from Coors. And look, tell them the snake section. So, I think that's it, freaks. I think I accomplished what I set out to do this week. Vinny, Vinny, but see... I came, I saw, I conquered this son of a bitch as only the snake can. I'm a 400 hitter in my universe, baby. I do what I do, what I do, and I do it better than anyone else on the planet. These are undeniable facts, folks. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch looking bored and unproductive AMF, by all means, it's still a little warm. Take those little monkeys outside. Play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week with that Michael Jack Schmidt bio, you cement freaks. I love you guys. Peace.